chapter 5. Let's just reread one of the verses that we uh, read a moment ago in our reading from the Bible. That will be verse number 6. I wonder if, as you were reading this this morning, you kind of thought, I wonder what he's up to with this. And it just sort of depends uh, where you are in things, whether you know what I've been doing for the last little while. And I'll get you up to speed on that in just a few moments. But let's look at verse number 6, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into God's word today. So verse 6 says this, Now therefore command. So this is Solomon imploring uh, Hiram. And he says, Now therefore a command that thou that they hew me cedar trees. Cedar trees is what I'm interested in today. Cedar trees out of Lebanon. And my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint. For thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. So let's have a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads together and we'll ask God's blessing. Father, we are so elated that you have made it possible for us to once again uh, be here in the actual church house. And we think of verses that talk about this. We know that under normal circumstances, we're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We think of the fact that where two or three are gathered. And so often we find that word gathered in the Bible and understand that this is indeed your wisdom and your plan. And uh, we certainly understand emergencies and other problems, but we're rejoicing this morning and that we can be here, and that uh, you have given confidence to the number of people who are here. And Lord, help us always to realize that some may not be able to make that decision yet, and to have the utmost of compassion and understanding for them. And we pray that you will continue to bless them until they are able to come. And I pray for the folk here that you will continue to guide and direct and bless them as they seek to uh, implement any procedures or carry forward the ones from this morning, whatever is good. Uh, so that we may be able to continue in this. And then, Lord, um, one of the things that we've had to reflect on so many times over the past weeks is the fact that you undoubtedly have a greater purpose in all of this, one that is far beyond us as individuals. And uh, we tend to be so nearsighted. We tend to be only looking at our own lives. We tend to be only to looking at our own problems and not realizing that you're in charge of the world. You're in charge of the universe, And you have something you're doing through this, and we realize that that purpose uh, is a a very important thing. And and, and there are times when we don't realize that that something greater than us is going on. And I just pray, dear Father, that you will give us uh, faith to realize that you're in control and that you will do what is best for us and do what is best for America. And Lord, we don't understand what all those things are. Our hearts are troubled with many things that we see. But we do at the least pray that We will have honesty with our leadership, that they will be clear with us, that they will be fair with us, and Lord, that you will see fit to allow our nation to turn the corner on not just the illness itself, but some of the um, extreme politicization that seems to have happened over it, and Lord, that somehow we realize we're entering into a political season and it's almost the impossible to think that that things will be normal that way. But we still pray that you'll take control and that that all the outcomes will be exactly as you've intended them to be, regardless of uh, the ways and thinkings and machinations of man. Bless us, Lord, as we take a few moments for your word this morning. Help me, Lord, to be able to see and proclaim those things that you will have for today. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, we began a series that I've entitled Trees with a Message. I don't know if you've ever thought about the different aspects of the Bible. Would you really preach on trees in the Bible? 
And I would ask you, if you haven't heard any of these messages, I would ask you to think with me about something that we might refer to as the inexhaustibility of the Bible. I'm convinced, and I've read many other people that say the same thing, people who have studied the Bible for a lifetime, even preachers who have preached the Bible for a lifetime, will be the first to tell you, you know, you've only scratched the surface. You, you could live 10 lifetimes and never preach everything that there is to preach in the Bible. And then when you think about the intricacies of God's Word, how you can find places that, that, that Jesus, for example, came to a place in the Bible where the whole meaning rested on one single verb tense. And the scripture I'm talking about is when he was debating with the, with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And you remember he referred to the place in the Old Testament where God met Moses at the burning bush and he said, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He didn't say, I was the God. These people were dead when God spoke that to Moses. And when Jesus came to that, the whole meaning of it that he wanted to convey to them in that particular instance, the whole doctrinal point that he wanted to make about the resurrection, he took from a simple verb tense. How neat is that? Well, then you go to the book of Galatians chapter 3, and you think about the fact that the apostle Paul a whole important point that he's making there theologically hinged on the difference between a singular and a plural. He said that the word of God said, and to thy seed as of one, not to thy seeds, right? Because when he said to thy seed in the singular, the whole point that Paul was trying to make was that that promise was ultimately and finally made to the Lord Jesus Christ and was fulfilled in him. He is Abraham's promised seed, we understand that now, we know that, but it's amazing to see. So why would it surprise us? And this is the point that I'm making. Why would it surprise us that God would invest the flora of the Bible, the fauna of the Bible, the geography of the Bible, that, there, that God is not so big, not as, God is not so small, God is big enough that he would have the wisdom to invest even things like that with meaning for us. And so that's what we're doing, Trees with a Message. And we had two little informal divisions that we made in this. One is, first of all, I talked about the towering trees of Scripture. And those three messages have already been, been brought. If you haven't had a chance to hear them, you can get CDs. But there are three trees in the Bible that are unparalleled. They are unique. There's not another like them. And we started off with those trees. First of all, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you have the tree of life. They both kind of occur right there in the same context in the Garden of Eden. And then later, which is the tree that kind of solves the problem created there and the tension between those other two towering trees is the tree of Calvary. And you have five or more references in the New Testament that go out of their way to speak of the cross of Calvary as a tree. And that can't be without significance. And I pointed that out in that message, the scriptures that Paul cites to show the exact significance of why the cross of Calvary is referred to as a tree because it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So those were the towering trees of Scripture. Now, when we get past those unique, one-of-a-kind trees, then we just have, I don't mean to deprecate them, but run-of-the-mill trees, trees that you would just sort of encounter in the course of reading the Bible because the Bible occurred in a land. The Bible occurred in a land that has geography. The Bible occurred in a land that has trees. The Bible occurred in a land that has animals. And you have constant references to these things. If you don't believe that, all you have to do is read Proverbs. I mean, Solomon spoke of plants. Solomon spoke of animals. Solomon said, go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. 
Solomon spoke of all kinds of things and found meaning in them as he was led by the Holy Spirit. Why should we not do the same? So this morning, we looked last week when we started talking about just the telling trees, that is, trees that just have a message that you can find. We looked at the sycamore tree. We called that the common tree. And I won't go back through that, but I do want to use that to explain why I've chosen to talk about the cedar tree in the message today. You might recall, if you heard that message, that there were three verses that were really important to us. And if you have your Bibles, uh, you don't have to worry so much about keeping your place here, although we will be coming back to 1 Kings. But go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. I want to reread two of these verses for you so that you can see kind of why I chose to move from the sycamore tree, which we kind of styled the common tree in the Bible, to um, the cedar tree. So 2 Chronicles chapter 1, and let me read there for you verse 15. 2 Chronicles 1, 15, here's what it says. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones and cedar trees. So that's our topic this morning. Cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. So do you see that there's an implied contrast there? While on the one hand... You, you come across the sycamore abundantly in the vale, in the Shephelah, in the lowlands, that, that geographical section of Israel where because the sycamore tree is so frost-sensitive that it flourishes more. And you come across them there as if they were relatively common trees. But the cedar tree, there's a contrast to that. Let's go over to chapter 9 of Second Chronicles. We'll see the other verse. This one says almost the same thing. Second Chronicles chapter 9. And there we're looking at verse 27 where it says, The king made silver in Jerusalem as stones. All right, so you see the implied contrast that's going on here that silver is rare and precious to us, right? So it has an assigned value as a precious metal. But stones, I mean, there's no lack of stones in Pennsylvania. Did you notice that? All right, so they're common. They're sort of like the sycamore tree. And then it says here, And he made cedar trees, as the sycamore trees that are in the low plains, or the vale is also how that's rendered, in abundance. So do you see the implied contrast? Now, it's interesting to say this, that cedar trees did grow in Israel, so it's not as if you couldn't find cedar trees in Israel. However, the type of cedar trees that we're really going to talk about this morning, the ones that were really the lofty prime examples, the ones that were the towering tall ones, these trees could grow anywhere from... They could be up to 115 feet in height. That's a huge tree. Some, some references you find say that they could actually grow to a 40-foot circumference. Can you imagine the size of that tree? And those grand trees, those grand lofty cedar trees that, that Solomon is talking about in the text that we read this morning, they occurred in Lebanon to the north of Israel. And so that's why if you have a those trees were not common in Israel. Those examples were not common in Israel. And so that's what we want to talk about today. And I want you to think, just as we talked about the sycamore tree as the common tree, I want to talk about the cedar tree today as the royal tree. And I think you'll be able to see where I'm coming from with that. I'm going to follow a development here that's very similar to what I used with the other message. I first of all want to talk with you a little bit about what do we know about the cedar tree. So we'll try as best we can to understand something about the cedar tree. We'll look at some references to see how it occurs in the Bible. 
And then we want to talk about what we can learn, and that'll get into this whole idea of the cedar tree that we're describing as the royal tree in the Bible. Well, here's something interesting. Um, there are some 48 references to the cedar tree or cedar. Sometimes it just goes by cedar. But there are some 48 references to that in the Bible. And as I said earlier, the tree is common enough in Israel. But the loftiest, grandest, tallest examples that were just fabled, so to speak, they occur in Lebanon. And they are actually described. You can find references to those trees that don't use the word cedar because a description is given of them. And we don't want to miss this because it's a huge insight into the way the tree was viewed and how we're calling it the royal tree this morning. They are called the glory of Lebanon. So let's look at a couple of verses with this. If you don't mind, I want you to just look at these because I think you'll feel better about it if you see this in your Bible. But we're going now to the book of Isaiah. And we want to go to chapter 35. We're going to have two verses in Isaiah. And you won't find the word cedar, but it will become clear that the reference is truly to the cedar tree. And what it's called, the glory of Lebanon, is what's very interesting and very important. Now, Isaiah 35, 2, this is a millennial verse, okay? So this is talking about the fact, verse 1. You'll recognize that right away. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. We know that's talking about millennial conditions. And then it says, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Well, the reference to the glory of Lebanon is to those cedar trees, which you would not encounter in the wilderness. So this is a millennial verse. It's a prophecy or a description of what will be a millennial times. Go to the book of uh, Isaiah chapter 60, and it, this one will be even more clear to you. I wanted you to see them both, but this one will be even more clear. Isaiah 60, verse number 13. And again, um, let's just get a little bit of the context Verse 11 says, Therefore thy gate shall be open continually. You can kind of tell this has a millennial flavor. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nations and the kingdom that will not serve the Lord, serve thee, shall perish. Yea, these nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box tree, to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. When you read that verse and God talks about those cedar trees adorning his sanctuary, well, this is kind of a takeoff from what we truly did see in the Old Testament because the cedar tree was used in the construction of the temple. And that's a big part of what we're seeing here. So the very fact that Scripture would refer to this tree, particularly the, the Lebanon version of it, as the glory of Lebanon, lends itself from the very beginning to us seeing how that would be associated with a king, because kings certainly display their glory. And we're going to see more of this as it unfolds. So what was the tree used for? Well, it was highly prized for its strength, for its durability, and its fragrance. Everybody here this morning, I'm sure, has smelled cedar wood. 
and you know that it has a particular fragrance. Now, that fragrance is pleasing to us. We like the smell of that. I think for the most part, most people enjoy the smell of cedar. And if you want a cedar chest or you want cedar shoe trees or whatever, you pay a little bit more for that. But there is a reason why this is beyond just the fact that the fragrance is pleasing to us. It has to do with the resins and the sap and so forth of the tree. You like it. It's pleasant to you. Bugs don't. That's a good thing. So see, if you're looking to find something that you build with, that the bugs tend to stay away from, it's kind of like you're looking to have some nice ornamental shrubbery in your yard, but you want something the deer don't like. Good luck. We, we did a project like this a number of years ago. I had a lady come to me and she said, I have a little money from the sale of a house or something that was going on. And she said, I want to know if you have something you need. And I said, give me a little while to think about it. The next week I saw her in church and I said to her, you know, I prayed about that because I didn't want to give you an off-the-cuff answer. And I said, yes, there's something, there's a little project up at the house we've wanted to do for a while. And she said, well, how much will it cost? And I told her, and she very shortly after that gave me a check to cover that project. I called the guy and I said, I want to build. I've lost some trees in the back. They were nothing but common pine trees, so to speak. They don't have much roots, all that kind of thing. And I've lost a bunch of those, lost some of the screening that's there. And I, I want to just, what do you have that the deer don't like? Well, he hemmed and hawed around, did some research, and he came back with two things. One was hemlock. Well, they don't like hemlock, but you know what? If it gets cold enough, the snow is deep enough, and they don't have anything else, they will eat it. We found that out a winter or two. But if you want something that if they can, go, if they can avoid it, they do. So we chose those hemlocks. Well, you, I mean, if you've got something you can build out of that the termites or other bugs don't have much interest in, it's like having treated lumber. You know, they don't like that either. And the wood borers and other things, they'll kind of fight shy of that until it kind of loses some of that chemical. Over time, it loses some of that chemical property. Cedar was like that. Cedar, for its durability and also for its height, when you got these types of trees, was also used, by the way, in the masts of ships. So this gives you some idea of why this tree was so sought after, especially in the, the Lebanon version of it. And so it was also used and reserved for special buildings because you can see what happened in the case of the temple. When Solomon and David got ready to think about building the temple, they didn't have those kinds of trees. They had cedar trees, but I mean, you've seen them. And, and if you don't have them that get very big, you're not going to do a major construction project with that, right? So if you know that up in Lebanon, just to the north of Israel, you can get those kind of trees. But, you know, in the Bible days, you didn't just send a tractor trailer up there and have a bunch of loggers with chainsaws and bring those things back. You remember Hiram actually had to float those things down. Remember that? So it, this was a huge undertaking. So those trees were, they were kind of what you and I would regard as expensive. It would be expensive to import those trees. They had a great value. So you didn't just use them for any building. You would use them for a special building which enters exactly where we read in the Bible this morning that it was used in the construction of the temple of the Lord. And we also read in the Bible, I'm going to give you the reference, but we won't turn to this one. We will turn to another one. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 11, David, who is arguably Israel's first and greatest king, because David never had any such 
opulence as Solomon did, but David neither did he have quite the blot on his ending that Solomon did. So arguably David is the beginning of the monarchy, built his house from cedar. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 11. But you know, David had a great heart for the house of God, didn't he? David really wanted to build the house of God. And what did God say to him? It's great that it was in your heart. It's great that you have a burden for this, but you've been a man of war and the privilege of building this house is going to be reserved for your son, for Solomon. But what did David do? He didn't just go off and pout about the thing. He laid up for it. He did everything he could to prepare for it. So let's look at this verse. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles and we want chapter 22. Just doing a little groundwork here. This is what we can learn, what we can see in the Bible about the cedar tree. 1 Chronicles 22. Now let's look here at verse 3. It says, And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. And look at verse 4. And cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. So then we get further, and this kind of is the ending of what I want to do by this part of what we know. Solomon erected the temple, and so let's go to back to our first kings for a moment. And there are a couple things I want to show you there about the extensive use that Solomon made of this, which is why Solomon was kind of so looked on for the opulence. I mean, silver became common, gold became common, these, these exquisite samples of cedar trees became common in uh, the, the building and construction that Solomon did. So 1 Chronicles chapter 6, we read from chapter 5 already. And that was where Solomon was making arrangements to get these trees. But let's look at chapter 6. And here's an interesting note. Verse uh, number, well, let's see what verse I want here. Verse, okay, um, but I want one sooner than that. I want... Yes, that Solomon erected the temple. So let's look, let's look at first at verse 9. So he built the house, 1 Kings 6, 9. So he built the house and finished it and covered the house with beams and boards of cedar. So that's a reference to the temple itself. Used pillars of this as well. So it would be common for cedar to be used in your rafters as well, to have the strength up in those, in those beams that were so important. Um, we won't continue reading there, but let's turn over to chapter 7 for a moment. And in verse 2, here's another building that we don't know that much about, but it's interesting what it was called. This wasn't the temple. This wasn't Solomon's house. But it says in verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits. Yeah, that's 150 feet. So this is not a small building. And the height thereof was 30, or 45 feet, and upon four rows of cedar pillars and with cedar beams upon the pillars. So Solomon had another very important building, whatever its use was, but it was actually called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. That's a reference to cedar trees, even though the cedar trees are not mentioned by name until you get to later in the verse. The house of the forest of Lebanon is a reference to those, the use of those trees in that particular building. Then, later in the chapter, chapter 7 and verse number 7, Solomon actually constructed his porch. 
not a porch to his house, his judgment porch where his throne was. Look in verse 7 of chapter 7. And he made a porch for the throne where he might judge, even the porch of judgment. And it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. So do you begin to see now why it is? We started off with those verses that said that Solomon, the opulence, the riches, the wealth, the glory of the monarchy and of Israel under the time of Solomon was unrivaled. See, David was a man of war, but Solomon was a man essentially of peace. And Solomon had the opportunity to consolidate. Do you ever think about the difference between these two men and the difference between their gifts? It's not that Solomon didn't understand about fortifying, because you can read about what he did. There were three particular cities that he fortified. He knew something about keeping the nation strong and keeping the nation where people wouldn't just feel that they could come attack you and get away with it. But because David had essentially been a man of war, and he had carved out the kingdom of Israel, and, I mean, the, the Israel of David's day was far greater than the Israel that you know today because it went north over Syria and approached the Euphrates River. And this, all this territory, that, and David conquered these people, he spent his time doing that. But Solomon inherited that. So it would be like someone founding a business, a, a dad founding a business, and from the ground level up, making this business a huge success, and then turning it over to his son, whom he groomed for that job. Doesn't mean the son doesn't need skills. In fact, he needs skills maybe of a different set because now he's got a well-oiled machine that's running. How does he keep it well-oiled and running smoothly? How does he grow it from that point? And that's what Solomon was able to do. So it was unrivaled. The glory of Israel was unrivaled in the days of Solomon, and the cedar tree becomes an image of that. So Here's now a transition to our second thought, what we can learn. With these qualities in mind, it's really easy for us to see how, because of its um, symbolism for, loyal, uh, for royalty, it's, uh, the, the cedar tree would be a, an apt symbol for royalty because of the things that are commonly associated with a king. As I, I've used the word opulence a number of times, majesty, power, wealth, riches, all of these things when you have a tree that's called the glory of Lebanon. And Solomon was the glory of Israel, when you think about it in that sense. Now, there's a, an upside to this and a downside. And this is really the last of kind of the information part of it. I'm going to transition to a few thoughts I want to give you devotionally, and we'll, we'll wrap things up. But on the human side, there's a, a bad downside to this. Because when God gives us a certain amount of glory and recognition in this life, What's our first tendency to do with that? If I have that business that I described a moment ago, and I start this business from the ground up, or let's even make it a man in the ministry. Let's say he starts a church, and let's say he builds it from like zero, and he builds it to a place with a, a, a large campus, a number of buildings, and a number of, of ministries. What's the temptation? To give glory to God, we say that's what we do, but in the flesh, what's our temptation? It's kind of want to take that glory to ourselves, call attention to ourselves. So for a monarch like Solomon, whom God had given all these things, he asked for wisdom. 
And God was pleased because he asked for wisdom and gave him all those other things to boot. So he had all of this unrivaled wealth. And what's the temptation? The temptation is to grow independent of God. Don't need God anymore because I have huge assets. I have all this money. I have all this wealth. I have people surrounding me every day, people that provide sumptuous fare every day. I don't worry about eating hot dogs, folks. I mean, you know, it's like lobster and filet mignon whenever I want it. And it's awfully tempting for us when we get into a position like that. And I'll give you an example. I've often said over the years that church attendance is the easiest habit in the world to break and the hardest one to get back. Think about it. We've got to mind our manners because of the last 12 weeks, lest we fall into a rut that caters to our human laziness. Well, it's the same thing here. The moment you begin to increase in all of these things, we don't pray as much. We don't read the Bible as much. We don't give God the glory as much. But the moment that God hangs us out a little bit and we start to get desperate, oh, then we start praying again. And the moment God starts to do those things for us, we say, oh, praise the Lord. Because we recognize that it was only of God. And so the downside is that people who achieve a certain amount of glory, and the cedar was a symbol of that, become self-invested. They, they begin to take credit for it themselves. They begin to become pride, prideful themselves. And I'm going to have to cut this a little bit, but in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 9, you'll find a reference to an Israelite king by the name of Jehoash or Joash. And if you remember the story, 2 Kings 14 and verse 9 Amaziah was the king in the south, and Amaziah had been given by God a victory over the Edomites. And so he got a little uppity. He said, hey, I've had this victory over the king of Edom. Let's just, we'll just have a little situation here with Joash and put him in his place. And so he challenged Joash, and he said, come, let us look one another in the face. Do you remember that? kind of poetic analogy that he used. He said the thistle that was in Lebanon, the thistle, the monofloral rose. <laughs> you know, maybe it wasn't even that nice looking. But the thistle that was in Lebanon said to the cedar that was in Lebanon. Well, he was calling Amaziah the thistle and himself the cedar. Did you see how kings began to associate? He called him, if you go to other references in the Bible, I'm giving them in case you want to write them down and go to them later, but we don't have enough time here now. But in Ezekiel chapter 31, if you go there and verses 3 and following, you'll find that this, the Assyrian kings were kind of described in that way, and all of their power and all of their glory were described in the terms of the cedar tree. But I'm telling you something, folks, and we will go to this. God's condemnation is on that. Go to the book of Isaiah. Anytime we arrogate to ourselves, anytime we take for ourselves glory that belongs to God, God is dead set against that and his judgment is on it. Whether it's chastening in the lives of his children or it's out and out judgment in the lives of people. And I'll tell you, I wish some of the people that are in leadership and in power today would understand something, and that is they answer to a higher power. And they don't seem to understand that, and it's going to be a rough ride for them in the day of God's judgment. But in Isaiah chapter 2, you're going to get a feel for this. Look with me at verse 
11. The lofty looks, Isaiah chapter 12, 2, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, 2, I had it right. Uh, verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low and upon the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon the oaks of Bashan and upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up and upon every high tower and upon every fenced wall. And God says he'll utterly bring his judgment upon those vain imaginings and the pride of man. I may have had occasion to tell you this before. We'll take a little pause and I'll just tell you a brief story. But I may have an occasion to tell you before, you know, when J.S. Bach wrote musical compositions, well, in the first place, Bach had an incredibly high view of music. We've lost that sense, I think, largely today. But Bach said this, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. So with those kinds of convictions, when Bach set about to write a musical composition, he would put two initials at the beginning. They were Latin for two words. They were Latin for Jesus help me or Jesus strengthen me. At the end, when he finished the piece, he would sign it with three additional letters, SDG. What did that stand for? Soli Dei Gracia, which means to God alone be the praise, to God alone be the glory. And Bach had it right. Because you know what God says in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8? I am the Lord and that is my name and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And folks, it's easy enough to point to arrogant people in power today and say they've got a rough road ahead, but we need to be careful ourselves. We need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become proud, independent, and begin to think upon ourselves as bringing these things to pass, because God's not going to share his glory with any man or woman. But the upside is, and I've left myself no time for the, <laughs> but the upside is, you got to expect this after 12 weeks away. I won't do this to you, but I could go for another hour. In fact, it sounds strange to say, I was so, I felt so liberated in that cemetery. I'd have preached an hour, but we can't do that. And, and probably a lot of you haven't heard this story, but they had severe, th before I ever got out of Huntington, I had a severe weather, a thunderstorm alert on my phone. I said, oh, Lord, they said those things were coming in the afternoon. I got up on 99 and my phone, what in the world is another severe thunderstorm? And I could see it, and I mean, it was light and clouds and darkness coming down by the bucket full. And I had a guy call me on the phone. By the way, I have a name for you. We talked about this. That's what a friend, minister friend of mine called me on the phone. And he, he's talking and I said, Jerry, I said, it's raining like crazy here. I don't know if I can write this information down. And he said, oh, well, then you need to keep your eye on the road. I said, yeah, because there's a curve here and a curve here. And I can write about three letters down. And I said, Lord, uh, I did tell him on the phone, I said, you, you need to pray. 
I said, it's raining up here like it's not going to ever stop. And I said, this funeral's in the cemetery, and I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have a clue what we're going to do. I said, I sure hope the funeral director has a clue what we're going to do. Well, we got there, and it was raining. I stood there under that tent for half an hour. I've never seen a funeral director not come until right on the dot. Usually they're half an hour early. I was half an hour early. It was still raining, occasionally rumbling thunder. Once in a while you see a little lightning. And then gradually as it was time for us to start, it was just slack. I mean, it was just very light. And I don't know. The more I preached, the less it rained. And it finally stopped. And I just give God praise. I mean, that was just exactly what I'm talking about here this morning, folks. Enough to keep you humble. Enough to keep you on your knees. I got there and there's two guys standing by the grave and they're fumbling around trying to get things fixed and all that kind of stuff. And, and somebody said, one, either one of them or the VFW guys or whatever for the military honors came up and said something about, you're supposed to pray. And I said, well, I am. But I said, you've got to realize I don't make the final call. But, you know, God was good. There's, I see several folks that were here. They can tell you I'm not embellishing any. But I just felt so liberated in that cemetery. I could have, you know, not to have to be harnessed up in a room, you know, with a machine. But the upside of it is, is that all of these things make a wonderful illustration in the Bible. The tree of royalty. Because who is the king of kings? Who is David's greater son? Who is the one that the kingdom in Israel and the king... The king in Israel ultimately foreshadowed. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there were three great uh, offices in the Old Testament. The office of prophet, the office of priest, the office of king. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of them all. See? And so when we think about this, now we don't have to worry about the downside because anything that reflects glory and majesty and splendor is dead on to portray what the Lord Jesus Christ is and what his reign is from heaven is and what his reign and rule on this earth will be like. First of all, purity. And I don't have time but just to give you some references, but you will find early in the Bible, in Leviticus 14 and verse 4 and following, also at the end of that chapter, then over in Numbers chapter 19, you'll find that cedar wood was associated with the ritual cleansing. In the cleansing of, of leprosy, it was used. We're not told exactly how it was used, whether it was dipped in the blood and used to sprinkle it or what. But in the story in November, in November, Numbers chapter 19, it was burned along with hyssop and scarlet with the ashes of the red heifer. And you remember they took those ashes and they mixed it with water and made a water of purification, remember? And the whole point behind it, go there and read Leviticus chapter 19. The bottom line was that the priest ended up pronouncing the person clean. I'm telling you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can pronounce anyone clean because it's only his precious blood that can wash sins away. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The blood of Jesus Christ does that. But his character is what gives it its e efficacy. That he is absolutely pure. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. There's no unrighteousness in him. None. But when you think about the kingdoms of this world and the prime ministers and the presidents and all these different things, you don't find that moral excellence that you find in Jesus Christ. You don't find that righteousness. But you know when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth, 
Isaiah 32.1 says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. Let me read that verse for you. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Because he is going to be a righteous king. And when you get to the book of Jeremiah, this verse we looked at in one of those messages there where it, it draws such a contrast between the earthly kings of, of Judah that were under judgment and the, the one who's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jeremiah 33, verse number 15. And it says here, in those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this shall be the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. But our governments today don't operate in righteousness. Truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. But in the kingdom of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, it's always administered in perfect righteousness because his character is sterlingly pure. He is not only the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he is the cedar of cedars. So purity is one of the first things that we think about the cedar. Secondly, we think about fragrance. And I already mentioned that. You can find verses on this, it's mentioned in Song, the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 11. Write the reference down if you want to look at it later, but I, I can't just have us do all this or your stomachs are going to start growling. But Song 4 and verse 11, but what we know is, is that he's altogether lovely. So when you, you come into a, a place, like if, uh, did you ever have this experience before? Did you ever go to a place and it was just foul? You ever had that experience? I have. I will never forget until the day I have Alzheimer's. And I'm not wanting it. But I'm just saying, you learn never to say never. I remember being in Illinois, in the church there, Schomburg. And I went to visit a guy. Somehow he had either attended the Sunday school class or was a prospect for it. I walked into that place, and I have never smelled anything like that in my life. It, he either had 27 cats or else he didn't know where the bathroom was. I'm not sure which it was, but I've never smelled anything like that. And I've been in some humble places, folks. Never smelled anything like that in my life. Well, what the, the polite way to say that is that's very disagreeable. You don't want to stay in there long, do you, when you have that? There's nothing disagreeable about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's altogether lovely. His fragrance is pleasing and agreeable. And when we think about what it is to serve him, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's altogether pleasing and agreeable and pleasant. And all of this speaks of him in that sense of the term. I thought a little bit about it's got to be a song that talks about this. It kept bouncing around in my mind. And I thought about, I think the song I want is I'd Rather Have Jesus. So I got to casting about and looking at the lyrics of that song. And it didn't quite mention what I was thinking, but it was close. And in this third stanza, it says, He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. 
He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Sin is ugly. Sin is disagreeable. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. But by contrast, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, there's always, I say, there's always a story behind these songs, even if we don't know them. A man by the name of Miller, Ray Miller, wrote the lyrics to that song. We might not have ever known it if George Beverly Shea's mother hadn't gotten a copy of that poem that that man wrote and put it on the piano. She put it on the piano in the hopes that her son, George Beverly, would see it there and that the lyrics might have an influence on his life. Well, that woman was led of the Lord because he sat down at the piano, he looked at those lyrics, and they gripped his heart. And all of a sudden, he started to sing a tune to it. He wrote the music to it. And then, as you know, later, or maybe you don't know, later in life, he was offered actually a music career with NBC. He turned it down. This song really did, I'd rather have Jesus. It really did make a profound impact than to be the king of a vast domain than to be right at the head of all the pop lists and the, and the music industry. Rather have that, and of course, you probably know him best, and I remember him best for his singing in the Billy Graham Crusades. He'd sing that song. Boy, it'd be something to get up to heaven and listen to some of those people, won't it? I got a bucket list of things when I get to heaven I want to do. One of them, there's a few black preachers I want to hear. There's a few white preachers I want to hear, and there's probably some others I don't know about I want to hear. But I want to hear some of these people sing. Or maybe I'll be able to sing like they do one day, because I can't sing like that. But I'd like to hear him thunder out how great thou art. I'd like to hear him thunder out, I'd rather have Jesus. And I'll tell you what, folks, I have an idea it's not going to be quite so staid as it is sometimes in our churches. I believe there are going to be some amens. I believe there are going to be some shouts. Because he's altogether lovely. His fragrance is fair. His power. If you were to turn to Job 40 and verse 17, you'll find that the the creature, the behemoth, whoever that was, but we use that expression today, right? The behemoth is something that's huge. Whatever this creature was, whether it's the hippopotamus or something like that, people go back and forth on Leviathan and and behemoth as to what they were. Some people think the crocodile. Some people think the hippopotamus. All kinds of ideas. No one is 100% sure. But one thing is for sure. When Job is talking about this in Job chapter 40, I'm going to read this verse for you so that we're not just talking about things you have no idea why I got this point. But Job 40 and verse 17. Now this is poetical language describing behemoth. And it says, He moveth his tail like a cedar. Now can you imagine whatever that was, His tail was such that when he moved it, it had the power of a cedar tree. Then you turn over to Psalm 27, and uh, I'm sorry, it's Psalm 29. Look there just a few pages over, and you'll see the point that I'm making. Psalm 29, verses 4 and 5, the voice of the Lord is powerful, The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. God's so powerful that the cedar is like a toothpick 
to him, and yet its strength to us is unrivaled. I mean, it was the steel building material of the ancient world, so to speak. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Well, I'm telling you something. No one will be able to resist the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes to rule and reign on this earth, he will dash in pieces those who seek to resist him as a potter's vessel is dashed in pieces. And he will rule and reign on this earth with a rod of iron. No earthly force, no earthly power can resist him. So why are you and I trying to resist him? How ridiculous that is to think that we can resist God, that God reveals his will and plan for our lives and we think we know better and then we resist. Royalty, David's greater son, king of kings and lord of lords according to Revelation 15, 16 and the one who is given the name above every name. The cedar, of course, was unrivaled. So when... David's greater son comes, his royalty will be unmatched. And finally, glory. We've already had any, any number of verses documenting the glory of the cedar. But when you think about Jesus, his glory exceeds that of any earthly king. It will fill the earth. And it's really interesting to kind of leaf around the Bible and see where you happen to find verses that talk about this. You know, we are looking for the blessed hope. And what kind of appearing? Glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself was talking about his return to the earth, and we often dis distinguish his first coming and his second coming, or if we want to distinguish with the rapture, we often refer to his second coming in glory. Well, we're not wrong in doing that because that's what the Bible does. And in fact, Jesus himself, here's Matthew 24, 30. Listen to what he had to say. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great what? Glory. I'm glad I'm going to be on the winning team that day. I'm glad I'm going to be here to see that. I want to see that glory. I want to see it fill the earth. I want to see... Jesus Christ acknowledged for who he really is when today his name is cast out. And in many cases, so are the names of his followers. A little story and I'm done, but you know, years ago, France had a monarch and he was Louis XIV, but he had a way of referring to himself as Louis the Great. He, this is what I'm telling you. On the Human side, especially with people in power, it's always this temptation, right, to sort of take that glory to yourself. He reigned for 72 years. He died in 1715 after a reign of 72 years. Called himself the Great. Well, he's the one who's famous for the statement that I am the state. I am the state. Wow, talk about some arrogance. That's it. Of course, he gave instructions for his funeral. He wanted that to be as elaborate as his life was elaborate. And so they, they chose the great cathedral and all of that and whatever the trappings were. He had, a, he had a glorious type of a casket, all this type of stuff. But they had made arrangements at his instructions that the lights in the cathedral were, were dimmed down so that then over his casket was a single candle 
which of course was meant to draw everyone's eye there and to signal the fact that in the dimly lit room around them, a reminder of the glory of Louis the Great. Well, the bishop came out, the people got quiet and still to hear what he would have to say, and the first thing he did was to reach out his hand and snuff out that candle. I wish we had some clergymen today with that kind of courage. He reached out, snuffed out that candle, and uttered these words, Only God is great. And my Jesus is great. I hope you get a chance. If you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, um, you should at least be able to get the audio of it. But at Easter time, I had a little clip there uh, of S.M. Lockridge. That's one of the black preachers. I don't really know that he's living today, but he preached another very famous sermon in the 1970s, and it's entitled, He's My King. So those of you that heard this can kind of catch right on to what I'm saying. If you haven't, I would encourage you. You've got to wait to hear that. The sermon itself is actually nigh on to a, an hour and 15 minutes. He probably was just getting started. But it, this section, about five minutes or more, that you hear in that clip that I had for you the other week is towards the end. So go, go, go to like minute 55 or somewhere in there and you'll hear it for yourself. I've listened to the whole sermon. Well, of course, he keeps going through and bringing out the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and he keeps saying, that's my king, that's my king. But interspersed in that whole sermon, whenever he talks about that's my king, he is always asks this simple question, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because folks, we either will acknowledge him now, humble ourselves before him, confess our sins, ask for his forgiveness, put our faith and trust in him as our personal savior from sin, and then live our lives that way. Or we will bow before him one day because... At the name of Jesus, everything in heaven and earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the cedar of cedars. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the joy today of being able to revel some in the glory of knowing you. We realize that glory is something that belongs exclusively to you. To the extent that you allow us to have any accomplishment in life, help us always to remember to give you the praise. Help us always to know that it's nothing in my hand I bring, only and simply to thy cross I cling. And I pray, dear Lord, that you will just set our hearts aglow. Thank you for this first time we've been able to be back together Help us to be able to love you a little more because of being here today and use this message that we tried to give that will exalt and honor Jesus and thrill us with how the Bible is filled with things at every turn, things that we would have never thought of and never will because it's so inexhaustible. And we'll thank you in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen.